When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I am speaking with Ranjani Chatterjee, Alicia Kristoff, and Amy Wong about undisciplining. So can I ask you guys to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure, I guess I'll go first. I'm Amy Wong, and I'm an assistant professor of English, and I teach at the Minican University of California. I'm Ranjani Chatterjee. I teach in the English department at Concordia University in Montreal. And I'm Alicia Kristoff, and I teach at Amherst College. Thank you guys so much for being here. Let me start off by asking you our first question. What the heck is undisciplining? I can start us off. So the term is not ours. It's one that we draw from literary scholar and Black Studies scholar Christina Sharp's book, In the Wake on Blackness and Being. And there, Sharp argues that academic disciplinary modes of partitioning knowledge and sort of segmenting forms of looking at history and literature into different fields has occluded a lot of vital insight and scholarly approaches to studying the archive of slavery and trying to understand how we in the present continue to inhabit the afterlives of Atlantic slavery. So for Sharp, approaching these silences, these occlusions, these omissions in the archive require sort of new modes of knowledge and new methods, radical new ways of seeing. This is where undisciplining comes in. Absolutely. It also points to, for us, some ways that entrenched disciplinary methods can crystallize racism, right? And so we wanted to challenge that in our field. So by picking up Sharp's term and thinking about the concept of undisciplining Victorian studies, we're asking, how can we reckon with the anti-Blackness and the racism that has structured our field and its ways of knowing, and also some of the ways that it conducts itself as a field, that is, some of the social practices of the field. So we begin with a recognition of how predominantly white Victorian studies is and recognize that it can only be that way, not by accident, by a kind of purposeful, whether that's conscious or not, right, but purposeful exclusion. And I'm thinking there, too, of Bridget Fielder's excellent essay on these subjects. It's a way to think not only outside of traditional modes of scholarly disciplinarity, but to become 
undisciplined in the sense of not letting existing rules govern how we think about the past. And the phrase that Sharp uses that was really important to us was a past that is not past. It sounds like part of the discipline that is enforced by this academic disciplinarity is both a historical occlusion where we can't see the archives of slavery, we can't see its effects on the present, and literally disciplining of the field in order to produce a whiteness and a homogeneity mm-hmm. in practice. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Building on the practical application of this term, how do I use undisciplining? I think of undisciplining as a kind of heuristic that allows us to think about methods that masquerade as what Zadie Smith calls a neutral universal, right? Which is actually cued a very provincial whiteness. And I think that when we undiscipline in Victorian studies and we can use methods that don't seem somehow natural to Victorian studies, like critical race theory, critical ethnic studies, anti-colonial thought, fields that we claim Victorian studies has not really admitted as theoretically relevant to the field. So if we acknowledge the provinciality of, say, making a theorist like Foucault central and feel natural to our field, but not, say, the Black Panther Party, whose work we know that he was actually reading, I think that then we can see that perhaps all forms of critical methodologies are not only situated, but that they are also disorganized. And that understanding that randomness, that disorganization, that's really kind of constitutive of our engagements is really important when we don't want to get stuck in these methods that are masquerading as neutral universal. That's really interesting what you said about provincial. Your main point is well taken, that these theoretical constellations that we use are just sort of accidental in a lot of ways or contingent upon other structures. And maybe it's no accident, as Galicia was suggesting earlier. But could you say a little bit more about what you mean by provincial and this idea of provincial whiteness or Foucault as a provincial figure? I'm thinking about the ways in which what is actually a very small set of objects of interest. And Elaine Friedgood writes about this in the way in which our field has invented the realist novel as the highest art, the most universally human object that you could go to is Middlemarch or a Dickens novel. And that still sort of like resonates from the academy outward to popular culture and popular political discourse as well. And so to recognize that those objects are actually very small, I think is one part of what I'm saying here. At the same time that their overrepresentation has created a kind of assumption of universalism that has been complicit with the ways in which most people in the world would be excluded from that universalism. Um, They're also just like very small elite objects. Yeah, totally. It's like when my students say novel for book. (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah. But also maybe connected to the project of distant reading, right? Like all, all of those books that didn't make it into the canon. I think some of the ways that we thought of undisciplining for ourselves and in the work that we did together, two really important things. One is just to kind of resist the compartmentalization of the field of Victorian studies and the insularity of that field, and to start reading and engaging really widely outside of it. 
because we've seen that to be one of the hazards that scholars in Victorian studies can face, right? Like you're reading everything inside the field and not reading from other fields that have so much to teach us, whether that's African-American, Black studies, Native and Indigenous studies. Obviously, the list goes on and on, critical race and ethnic studies. We just noticed how insular we felt we were being disciplined into being in our field and just wanted to acknowledge like there's much more to read and learn from and draw from in our practice, even if we are still going to engage 19th century British texts or texts of 19th century British empire, that there are other methodological and theoretical approaches that we must learn from in order to do that work in a truly rigorous and capacious way. So undisciplining has meant one need not be confined to a narrow set of disciplinary approaches. And then hand in hand with that, we talked about a kind of more expansive citational network, but also social network, being able to work collaboratively, being able to work with scholars outside of Victorian studies and their ideas in a way that is careful and ethical and really engaged, but just not treating ourselves as if we're working in a vacuum. Yeah. And I would just echo both of you I think we hoped in our introduction to the Victorian Studies special issue and the LARB piece that preceded it to kind of make it quite clear that undisciplining is not a project that begins and ends. We want it to be a kind of careful, rigorous, ongoing, plural mode of engagement. Sometimes I think about the proximities. I wouldn't call the terms analogous in any way, but there are proximities, I think, to the way that we want to take up on disciplining and to the way that scholars have talked about the difficulties of throwing around a term like decolonizing as if it's something that one can just easily instrumentalize as if it's something that is just a project one can sort of complete tomorrow or in a semester or in a year the difficulties of understanding a term that operates metaphorically, materially, on a number of different registers. And we wanted to make sure that we weren't advocating a use value to it that was just kind of neat, that it really did involve a radical renovation of our field specifically, but also just the the methods we've been used to, social practices that we've become comfortable and familiar with in the field. What I'm hearing from all of you guys is a strong interest in methodologies as opposed to objects. This isn't the canon wars again right? It's something a little bit different. I think that while it is very much about methodology, it also sort of sits outside of what traditionally gets called the method wars, which in the most kind of recent iteration has been the critique and post-critique. The project kind of suggested by Sharp and other thinkers that we're engaging with in our piece feels like a different scale than the method wars, right? Like it's talking about a radical philosophical project that involves renovating our major categories, not just of analysis, but of conceptualization, right? Like renovating the concept of the human, right? Like renovating the concept of the past and what that looks like. So really rethinking the cornerstones, not just of how we operate as literary critics or as critics, but of like how we conceptualize history and the world around us. How will undisciplining save the world? It will not save the world. (laughs) (laughs) Of that much, we are sure. (laughs) We've been thinking a lot about unworlding. So maybe that's where we could start. Undisciplining is primarily about unworlding. And to just say that there aren't these singular whole worlds. 
some of the questions that we've gotten about undisciplining is, is it the end of the humanities? And I want to say, I mean, maybe it is, but for a certain kind of humanities. And it's about who do we want the humanities to be for? I'm thinking a lot about how to unworld a certain kind of humanities and to think about a different humanities that could be more responsive to more people um, and to also be a bit more ground up. There's a kind of important negativity to Sharp's work as well. But I mean, there's a question about how undisciplining work can move scholarship can it be on the side of liberation? Like, is that possible? When it comes to undisciplining Victorian studies, my personal answer is still more uncertain. Can our methods of approach and the ways that we organize the structures of the field and the social practices of the field be less violent and be less exclusionary of people of color? I hope so, you know, and I think that's what the three of us were working toward together to ask that question and to try to move us in that direction. But can the study of these texts that I would not name as liberatory texts save the world? I I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I think too, like all the thinkers that we tried to think with, that we continue to think with, I think what they ask in a really profound way is what kind of world do we want to live in? What do we want to save and preserve? And what should we leave behind? We were finishing our thinking around these pieces last summer when global protests for racial justice were happening all around the world. We recognize that there are people actively engaged in the struggle to save the world, whatever should be saved from it. And we're just trying to contribute from our maybe small provincial intellectual corner. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It's thank been you. really awesome. It's been really fun. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonic Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.